for Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we consider the works of the heavens themselves as we contemplate the cosmological implications of our created existence. We talk with Paul Wallace, astrophysicist and scientist and author of the new book, Stars Beneath Us, that attempts to bring together an understanding of science and religion. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Paul Wallace. Paul holds a Ph.D. in experimental nuclear physics from Duke University, and he teaches physics and astronomy at Agnes Scott College. When he was 40, he went to go and get a Master's of Divinity from Candler School of Theology, and he also teaches at Candler and at Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. He's ordained in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and today we're talking about his new book, Stars Beneath Us. It's a book about finding God in the evolving cosmos. Paul Wallace, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. As a way of getting into the conversation, I've asked you to read a short passage from Stars Beneath Us, and I wonder if you would be willing to do that now. Sure, happy to. Imagine a house made of bricks, boards, wiring, switches, nails, fuses, sheets of drywall, and shingles. Now imagine that, over the course of ten years, piece by piece, every brick, board, wire, switch, nail, fuse, sheet of drywall, and shingle is replaced by an exact duplicate. Imagine that this keeps happening for years, one full turnover occurring every decade or so. In the end, it's the same house, right? Or is it? Or is what we call the house more like a pattern into which things come to fit for a while, only to be replaced and sent on their way. Either way, your body is like that house. You are made of things that existed long before you were conceived and that will continue to exist long after you pass away. They are teamed up to make you right now, and I do mean right now. Many of your atoms are on the way out as you read. Others are just arriving. These atoms don't know they're part of you. They're just atoms. They're not even alive but you are. I don't know what qualifies as an official miracle, but this seems like one to me. The most remote reaches of the cosmos are so close to us as to be us. We may have been formed from the dust of the ground, but the dust of the ground is star stuff, prepared billions of years ago among the swirling lights of heaven. And that's Paul Wallace reading from his new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. Well, Paul, I want to start out with this conception that you've just given us, that we are are in some ways constantly being recreated, if for one of a yeah. better for one of a better term, from from this material that is that is very, very old. And when I when I read that passage, I thought of something that I, I saw many I guess a few years ago when I was and forgive me, when I was watching the Glenn Beck show and the <laughs> 
There, were, there was a point where Glenn Beck had a uh, – he was talking to someone who was from the political left and was interested in kind of sharing wealth and redistributing wealth. And Glenn okay. Beck sort of handed this person a, a bottle of water and said, well, I'll give you some water. And then Glenn Beck said, well, it's my water, but I'm choosing to give it to you. And he was trying to make a point about ownership. And, right. And when, when, I, when I read that passage uh, that, you just, uh, that you just read for us, I thought about that moment with Glenn Beck and realized Glenn did not know what he was talking about because the notion that, that we own water – I mean you, you made the very eloquent point a, a couple paragraphs after this that basically we're talking about dinosaur pee at this point. <laughs> and I wonder if you'd, if you'd be willing to sort of talk a little bit about kind of when, – when you are talking about this, this notion that we are being recreated by star stuff, what are we really talking about there? Well, it, it connects so many different things that it's hard to, to say exactly what we're talking about. But what I think about what I think of that is that reality is just not the way it seems always. And it does seem like, in our mindset, that Glenn Beck was right. He paid for the water, or somebody did, Fox did, or somebody. And then he owned it, and he passed it on to whoever it was. But if you sit back and think about the world that we live in and how we got here, the whole idea of ownership seems like a narrow point of view. And certainly from the point of view of uh, astronomy and, you know, cosmology, it, uh, it, seems, it seems a little presumptive. So if I'm hearing you correctly, when Glenn Beck had that, that moment where he thought that he owned the water, um, he was looking at that from a very limited point of view from a cosmological time scale. Is that right? Yes, he was looking at it very immediate, very pragmatic sense, and not necessarily in in a sense that I find interesting. Well, we we've begun to to start to touch on some of these things. So let's let's actually back up for a moment and begin to define some terms so that our listeners can keep up with us. So. When I talked about your background, I mentioned that you have a, a background in nuclear physics, but now you teach astrophysics. I think our listeners might have a, a sense of what the term physics means, and they might even have a sense of what the term astronomy means. But could you tell us just briefly what it means to say that you study and you teach astrophysics? Sure. For many centuries, astronomy and physics were separate. Physics was about, you know, clocks and uh, inclined planes and projectiles flying through the air, and astronomy was about studying the stars. And for centuries, these were separate, and it wasn't until really Kepler in the 17th century uh, that these two things started to come together. And all that means is that we have a set of laws that we call the laws of physics. And it turns out that those apply not just to our terrestrial realm, but to the celestial realm as well. And we can, if we apply those laws to our observations of the sky, we can come to know a great deal about the cosmos we live in. It has been extremely fruitful, in other words, to apply the laws of physics to our observations of the sky. And that's what astrophysics is. And anymore, astronomy is a subset of physics. You know, it's found in physics departments. And uh, there are a few departments of astronomy out there but they're filled with physicists who have come together. And so when we're talking about this, we're talking about a way of applying the, the same sorts of principles that we, that we would use when we were rolling a, a ball down an inclined plane, but now we're applying those principles to the way that the planets move and the way that the stars evolve. Am I hearing that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Exactly. 
that that seems like a funny way to get into theological questions, and yet that's exactly precisely what you're doing here in the book Stars Beneath Us. And in a moment, we'll get into kind of how that came together, but but let me take just a moment and, and say that this is Things Not Seen, if you're just tuning in, and today we're having a conversation with Paul Wallace, and he's the author of the new book Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. So, you decided that you were going to be studying not just the natural world, but the, the, the world that exists beyond what we see in nature, beyond even the, the top of the sky. And you have this wonderful image in the book where you, you talk about walking, uh, when you were at Young Harris College as an undergraduate, walking up a very da- dangerous road late at night when yeah. there wasn't a lot, of, there wasn't a lot of, of wiggle room on either side and cars were coming back and forth. But you did that to get to a field uh, so that you could, you could get away from the city and the lights of the city and stretch out in the field and look up. What did you see when you looked up? Well, what I saw was for one thing, what anybody sees. The sky's there for everybody, and anybody can do what I did. You can go back, find a dark place. It's hard here in Atlanta, and I'm sure it's hard there in Chicago. And to open your eyes and just to see, number one, to see a really dark sky is really shocking, especially for a city dweller, because the stars are so numerous. It's hard to imagine that they had been there the whole time, your whole life, and you never saw them. The first thing I saw was just, just this onslaught of light from the sky. An unbelievable number of stars that you just don't realize are there. But what I appreciated was that by this time I'd had a couple of astronomy classes and I was able to imagine what I was looking at in a way that maybe you wouldn't be able to imagine it if you had not had a few astronomy classes. I was able to see Jupiter and Saturn and I was able to get a sense of the space between those planets and the stars beyond them. Now, I was even able to get a sense of the arc of our galaxy and the emptiness beyond it. I was, it's really a, a great thing to be able to add to this, just the general aesthetic pleasure of seeing the sky, to add sort of to that a little bit of knowledge about what you're looking at, and to get a sense not just of the spectacle of the, of the light, but to get a sense of space. Now, as you were as you were contemplating that vast void above you in the sky, from your own description, you were going through a bit of a void period yourself in your life. You had mentioned that you had been you had been raised as a person of faith, but during those years when you were you, you were busy making that trek up to that vista in the field, you had come to sort of a barren place in your own your own belief and theological journey. And I wonder if you'd just briefly sort of tell our listeners kind of what what you were what sort of state you were in when you were laying in that field in terms of your for want of a better term your spiritual life or your faith life sure sure yeah when i was raised i was raised in a protestant baptist upbringing and i loved church growing up i didn't go to one of those angry churches i went to one that uh, was actively actively loved me and other people so i had a good upbringing in church but the theology was a bit seemed a bit conventional and small to me because what was happening is I was learning at that point. I just become a physics major, and I'd always loved astronomy, and I was learning at a pretty rapid rate about the cosmos, about physics, about astronomy, about cosmology. And the faith that I was brought up in began to look a little small, a little insufficient, a little irrational in the face of the cosmos I was coming to know. And it just seemed just seemed insufficient, again, to use that word again, and it didn't seem relevant. And so, you know, I just, um, I, I, I was never angry about it, but I kind of just let it go, because it just didn't seem to apply. 
what I was learning about. You know, it just seemed like a like an unnecessary add-on, and so I let it go. Now, as we'll discuss in in the further conversation, that was not the state that you remained in. But it's important for our listeners to realize that at least at one point in your life, even though you had been raised in a in a faith background, yeah. uh, you abandoned that faith background, and that probably is going to be a space that a lot of our listeners will understand from the culture wars you were describing just now, sort of a tension classically between that faith perspective and the perspective that you were learning there at Young Harris College, a perspective yeah. of science. Before we before we jump into that in depth, I wonder if you could just quickly characterize for us your impression of how that debate, that tension between religion and science is playing out in the contemporary landscape? Well, it's just not very interesting because on one side, you know, you have, you know, you blame the media, right? It's easy to do. I won't completely blame the media, but it, it does, it does, it sells books and it sells papers and it, and, and it gets clicks uh, to pit science against religion because on one side you've got people like Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who are basically categorically opposed to anything that even smells like, like religion. And then on the other side, you've got folks like Ken Ham and uh, young earth creationists who uh, take such a ludicrous view of, of the world around them. I mean, it makes for good theater. So most of what you read in the popular press or on the Internet or what have you is, uh, is just, you know, this sort of dead opposition between, you know, the atheist and the, and the creationist. And that's just sort of, uh, it's unfortunate because that's, that's all that most people get. And it adds to this idea that, some, that, that, that is a real idea that there is some tension between the two points of view, but it just sort of turns a, turns a really interesting conversation into a bit of a cartoon. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Paul Wallace. He teaches astrophysics at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He's the author of the new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace. He teaches astrophysics at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, and he's the author of the new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. Before we left the show for the break, we were talking about the tension between science and religion in the contemporary landscape and the ways in which that tension do not fully talk about and gesture towards the, the actuality of the way that the world and the universe works. Most of what you read in the popular press or on the internet or what have you is uh, is just you know this sort of dead dead opposition between you know the atheist and the and the creation and that's just sort of uh, it's unfortunate because that's that's all that most people get 
and it adds to this idea that some, that, that, that is a real idea. Well, let's continue with that notion for a moment. You you say in the book that the difference between God and the cosmos, and by the cosmos we mean sort of everything that you saw when you looked out from that field into the night sky mm-hmm. and, and beyond it. So the difference between God and the cosmos is that God resists conceptualization and the cosmos does not. And so let's yeah. let's dig into to what that phrase means. So, so the cosmos can be conceived and thought about and explored, and, and God God resists that. Talk to me about that tension. Well, it's sort of a classic Christian idea that God is beyond our idea of, of kinds and types of things, that God is not a thing. And I believe that ideas and thoughts can be idols, just to, just to use a nice heavy religious term there, that thoughts and concepts can become idols just as easily as objects or you know, desires can become idols, things that we you know, run for and run after. The, the point I want to make here is, is kind of subtle, uh, I guess. It, it's still subtle when you try to talk about it. God is not an object among other objects. Whatever concept you have of God kind of misses God, necessarily. But the concept you have of, say, an atom or electron actually gets to something real about that atom or electron. And I think you can sort of depend on thoughts about things like atoms and electrons. And there's some sort of nice one-to-one mapping in the real world between my idea of an electron and an actual electron. There is a one-to-one connection. And it's a simple connection. But there's not a one-to-one sort of match, simple match between my idea of God and God and God's self, you know, the essence, as philosophers would call it, you know, or as Aquinas would call it, the, the essence of God. There's nothing in my experience, there's nothing in the world around me, single thing that I can point to and say, this is what God is like, and have that exhaust God even even remotely. God is not conceivable, is the point, and that's sort of the mark of God. This is fascinating to me. So I, as you're answering this question, an old phrase that I, I know through John Cage, but John Cage knew it through, through earlier writings, comes to mind. And he, he once uh, said in a, in a recording, split the stick and there is Jesus. And I think he was quoting an ancient Gnostic writing when he said that. And, <laughs> I like that. And, and, and I wonder about that because... You know, what that what that phrase says to us is, well, just, you know, look with the right way of looking and you'll see Jesus, you'll see God there in the natural world in the splitting of the stick. But what you're saying is, is maybe we shouldn't be too hasty, if I'm hearing you right, to, to believe that we've got the right kind of eyes to see that the same way that we could look through an electron microscope and see the structure of, right. of, a, of a molecule. Am I hearing that right? Right. God, the, the concept of God could become an idol, become something that you latch on to, and it's such an easy thing to mistake your idea about something for the thing itself. And so for those that have never read the book of Isaiah, why should we be worried about idols, Paul? <laughs> because, because we're attaching, uh, we're the wrong place, we're not looking in the right place. The religious impulse is about, in my view, connecting us with ultimate reality, which is God, but God, for me, is more of a still, small voice, you know, than anything else. And it's really easy to mistake the things in the world around us for God. 
And when we do that, and that includes our own ideas, not just the objects in the world around us, but the ideas in our head. It's so easy to mistake those ideas and those things around us for God. Uh, and when you make that misconnection, all kinds of you know sparks fly upward, as they say. So you've you've begun to use this one theological term, idolatry, and a, a reader of this book is going to encounter some other theological concepts as well, even though you don't always explicitly state them. Um, I I clocked as I was reading the the doctrine of providence, uh, a very uh, long discourse on on what we might call Christology or how we understand the nature of Jesus Christ. And also, and we'll get to this uh, in the conversation, the notion of theodicy, the problem of evil. Yeah. So, so those are, those are not things that one would normally expect to get from a book by an astrophysicist. So, where are you getting these concepts? What other training have you had? Well, uh, other than my seminary, I was I was in seminary, of course. Well, I grew up in a Baptist church, for one thing. Which, which one thing the Baptists do well. Um, I've got a good friend who likes to make the joke that he he wishes that his kids could be Baptists through through high school and then spend high school in an Episcopal church because Baptists are really good at telling the story to the kids. And I got all the story when I was a kid growing up. I got it every week. I got it every Wednesday, twice on Sundays. So besides all that, I worked in churches on and off my whole life, not professionally, but as a volunteer. And then I went to seminary as a 40-year-old. And uh, that's where I really got some of you know, my, my theological thinking got a little bit refined. I don't know what the word is, but definitely got a little, little clearer, for better or for worse, during my three years in seminary. And so you had seminary training, you had a, a Baptist yeah. background where, where these sorts of concepts were talked about. And so let's let's begin to unpack some of these terms. So when we talk about the creation of the world and the sustaining of the world, we're talking about a theological concept that is oftentimes referred to as providence, the way that God yes. provides for the world. Now, yes. there's a classical way of talking about providence, and you discuss it in the book, and then there's there's the way that you're thinking about, about the kind of providential nature of, of reality. And just quickly, if you could contrast those two for us. So what is, what's the kind of classical notion of providence, and what, what are you trying to get us to see through sort of, uh, this uh, What I would call a standalone God that is separate from creation. Um, and then, you know, this guy created ex nihilo, created from absolutely nothing, you know, created everything from, from nothing and remains essentially distinct from it. Um, again, the word essentially stands distinct from creation. Um, that's kind of, and, and, and also sustains it. You know, that's the providence you're talking about, that you know, if, if, if God were to, at, at any moment, choose in some way to not sustain the world, things would cease to be. So it is by God's providence and God's will that the, that the cosmos exists and not only what's created, but continues to exist. That's the classical view. Um, the view I'm trying to get at in the book is quite different from that, and that is that God did not create everything from nothing, that it was not a situation where there was nothing, whatever that might mean, and then all of a sudden uh, God created, uh, you know, without any constraint, uh, everything that is. My view, uh, and the view probably of those who uh, composed the book of Genesis, was that there was some sort of pre-existing primordial chaotic state, um, and God took that 
primordial chaos and spoke order into it and and shaped it by by God's word. Uh, you know, separated the waters from the waters. Uh, the waters represented this chaotic state I'm talking about, and so God was in a sense, uh, you know, limited by. That's that's really not quite the way I want to put it, but that's the words I've got right now. Was in some sense uh, not completely free to create in any way whatsoever. That the that the chaotic background, whatever you want to call it, the chaos. Um, meant that God's creation would have to be not ex nihilo, not from absolutely nothing, and would have to be gradual, would have to be sort of a slow process of, you know, of creation upon creation upon creation, as opposed to all at once. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace. He's an astrophysicist who works at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, and we're discussing his new book, Stars Beneath Us. And that begins to tie into where we began the conversation. So this notion that the water that I just drank to quench my thirst, that the hydrogen in that water was forged in a star or forged at some primordial state in the universe almost 14 billion years ago, according to the figure that you that you That's talk right. about, and and so that notion that that we how we think about ourselves as individuals that's constantly in in motion in flux. You you have this image of the house that is being taken apart and put back together continually, and and then so you apply this also to the notion of how God created the world. But what fascinated me. When you, when you made all these pieces sort of fit together, I thought, aha, this is process theology. And then there's this wonderful point where you say, but this is not, to me, process theology. <laughs> and so Tony, I, I want to know. Tony Jones is my editor, my editor, Tony. He gave me, he, does, he never had, he has never stopped making fun of that footnote. He thinks it's funny because it's so obviously process theology to him. Well, and, and I guess that it is. But but you you say there that you have a philosophical difference with with process theology and that's why you want to make the distinction and so I just want to take a moment and and for those that are unfamiliar with process theology it's the notion that God is a co-creator with the world and that that somehow the 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 way in which the world is progressing is tied up in eventually God becoming fully God and I may have mischaracterized that so correct me if I'm wrong that's, that's fair enough I think but but when you say that you have a philosophical Philosophical difference with that sort of way of thinking about theology. I wonder if you could just quickly walk us through that difference. Well, I tend to be a bit of a purist when it comes to almost everything, and I read John Cobb, and I, John Cobb is sort of the uh, probably right now the world's leading uh, proponent of process theology. And I read him, and I sort of absorbed, you know, the probably the eight or nine or ten points that make process what it is. And there's a few of those there that I just can't bring myself to sign on to and so I might be splitting hairs to be honest. I think I think you're probably right to, to put the word process on it. But um, and what we're seeing here is more more my discomfort with that than anything else. For example, you know, uh, Cobb's idea of the afterlife of, of, of heaven, of the blessed state is 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 kind of watered down in my opinion. And the older I've gotten, the less ludicrous the afterlife seems to me. My dad just died last week, and so I think a lot about the afterlife these days. And so that's one place, for example, I would break with, you know, sort of standard process theology. 
Well, let me say first of all, uh, my condolences on the on the death of your father, and I I'm sorry about that. And and uh, but the point that I'm hearing you making, if if I'm hearing you right, in your characterization of this, is that even though to a person who's setting your views and process theology side by side, there may be a lot of parallels and similarities. At the end of the day, you were trying to have a different conversation than the conversation that the process theologians were having. And if a process theologian were to look at what you're doing in Stars Beneath Us, they might not recognize their project in it. Is that a fair characterization? That's, 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 well, that's great. That's, that's exceedingly uh, fair and I think accurate, too, yeah. Well, and, and so that's that's helpful because because that gets us into kind of, you know, the, the really amazing aspect of this book for me was, you know, it, it's partly just a confessional work of kind of uh, the, the, in the same way that Anne Lamott might bring together her essays. You're just doing memoir here. You're talking about right. about about times with your father in the in the Okefenokee Swamp. You're talking about going out to that field. But then you're also weaving in very accessible information from your training in astrophysics, and you're bringing in highly technical theology at the same time, and it's it's all dancing together. And I I was fascinated. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I was fascinated to see how all of this this works. And so, when you sat down and thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book, was this exactly what you were thinking you were doing, or did this, for want of a better term, did this evolve in the process? Well, you know, I've always been dissatisfied with pretty much every religion, science, religion and science book I've ever read because it just didn't have any poetry to it or have any, it didn't have any, any, any poetry to it. It was just this sort of this dry sort of, you know, let's make Christianity believable to those who believe in science. And it just came out as it was really dry. And so I did actually from the beginning, try, I mean, I, I, was, I didn't have to make an effort to do it. It's just, this is just sort of how it comes out of me. You know, in any book I might write in the future is going to have the same mark. I guess I'm striving for, for some sort of wholeness of view, wholeness of perspective, and that can get goofy sometimes. Like I'm thinking about this movie, Tree of, The Tree of Life, that tries to hold these, this cosmic and this personal view at the same time. And, you know, some critics loved it, but some critics thought it was just goofy because it was trying to do too much. I tend to try to do too much, and I'm aware of that. And um, so, you know, thank you for your kind assessment there of the book, because that was exactly what I was trying to do. Well, and one of the things that you're contrasting here in Stars Beneath Us is what we might call sort of an ancient model of, of the universe, an ancient model of cosmology, versus what particularly the last 75 years have shown yeah. us in terms of, of really detailed observation of the physical aspects of the universe. And, yeah. so, and so quickly, if you could, walk us through what was that old model of the universe and, and how did that fit together? And then and then we'll get into more deeply kind of what, what the new explorations of the universe are showing us. Sure. Well, the old model is, uh, is the one that Copernicus overturned or helped to overturn. And that old model basically had the Earth motionless at the center of all things. And then there was the, the moon orbited above the Earth. And all the planets, there were seven planets, and the planets included the sun and the moon, and they all orbited around the Earth, although the word orbit wasn't used at the time. They all moved around the Earth and on these nested sort of spheres. Think of like the shells of an onion, 
the layers of an onion. They all sort of nested together and all rotated, carrying a planet with it. And so uh, the Earth was sort of, uh, you know, in, in a stationary position in the middle of all things. But not a, but middle is not really the right term. The, the, the term that would make the most sense to the medieval mind is the bottom. Uh, we were truly at the bottom of all things, and God was up above the stars, above the highest of those, those spheres I was talking about. Uh, but it was very much human-centered, maybe, in some way. Uh, we were certainly important, uh, cosmically important. And I think that's the point that I really want to leave you and the listeners with, is that we were cosmically important. And that cosmic importance was revealed in the structure of the cosmos. We may be still cosmically important, but that, co- that cosmic importance is, not, is no longer revealed in the structure of the cosmos as we know it. Well, and as as you were writing about this in the book, one of the the images that came to me was that of uh, a geometric figure, an ellipse. An ellipse doesn't have one center point; it's got two focal points, and then everything right. sort of works around that. And the way that you were describing it, that God is at the pinnacle, and that we're literally at the bottom, but we're still—I mean, even if we're at the bottom, part of how the entire mechanism operates depends upon us being in that That's place. Right. That's right. Now, it, yeah, we had a low role but it was still a, a, an important one. And, and, and one, of the, one of the terms that you use to talk about this is anthropocentrism. And so before, before we, we take a break, just quickly define for us what does this term mean? Well, it's in the word itself. Anthropocentric or anthropocentrism simply means centered on the human being, centered on humans you know, writ large, not a particular human being, but on humanity. So humanity-centered, I guess, is the, is the quickest way to, to say that. And we'll, we'll pick up with that right after the break. But for right now, uh, you're listening to Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with Paul Wallace. He's an astrophysicist and the author of the new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace. He's an astrophysicist that teaches at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. And he's the author of the new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. Before the break, we were talking about the concept of anthropocentrism, the notion in philosophy that humanity or human beings are the center of the story. And we're going to move from there to sort of see how that view has been destabilized, particularly with some of the new results of cosmological research. 
And so this notion that that human beings are at the center that underwent a real a real shift with the the help of a man by the name of Copernicus and what we might call a Copernican revolution. Quickly tell us kind of who was Copernicus and what did his work do to that anthropocentric model of the universe. Well, he was actually a Catholic canon. He had a parish up in uh, northern Poland, and he was a very quiet man, and he spent about 30 years working on this theory of the world, theory of the cosmos, that uh, instead of having the Earth in the center and all the planets moving around it, he placed the sun in the center, and under his model, the, the Earth was the third planet out from the sun. And um, it was not a new thing with him. It was, you know, Aristarchus at 300 B.C. or sometime, a couple centuries before Christ, had, had suggested the same thing. And he had picked up on that. And uh, what Copernicus did was made it believable. He didn't invent the idea, but he did make, make it believable. And in the end, he popularized it. And it really destabilized things, because it wasn't just a scientific theory at the time. It was not simply a matter of a cosmic arrangement of where certain planets sat. It was a moral and a religious structure as well, because on that old model of the universe, that old physical model, there had been imposed a, a moral structure and a uh, religious structure, and all that was came crashing down as soon as the Earth was displaced from the center. All the old notions of up and down and of God has a place up high and we have our place down low sort of became, as you said, destabilized. Well, and, and Copernicus was met with a great deal of resistance. And what was the nature of the resistance? Was it was it scientific or was it moral or was it both? It was all kinds of things. Uh, it was definitely partially scientific. Uh, the the real com- conflict didn't come with Copernicus. Copernicus never got a copy. He got his. He finally saw his first copy of his book on his deathbed. It was Galileo, of course, that really was tended to popularize the theory. And that's a very complicated story, but suffice it to say that it was scientific, religious, and also political, highly political conflict. It also had a lot to do with personalities, uh, Galileo's in particular. But that old story of conflict between religion and science probably started with Galileo, and that that was a very, very complicated story. But the practical result was that the old moral narrative that we were that we were the fixtures even at the low point of the of the narrative it was taken it was taken and sort of moved and and shifted and with with the result right. that that we began to see ourselves as not central to the story in a way that we'd often like to be the case right right we were we were decentralized and it was quite disorienting now What's interesting to me about what you do in the book Stars Beneath Us is that you take that Copernican shift, that Copernican revolution, where we're moved out of the center of the story, and we're still part of the story, but we're no longer the central focal point the way that we thought, and you bring a parallel with the book of Job. And a main portion of the center of your book is is sort of an unpacking of, of the Job narrative. And I wonder if you could quickly walk us through that parallel that you see between the Copernican sort of decentralization of humanity, the sort of the sort of dethroning of anthropocentrism, and what you see happening in the book of Job. Well, in Job, when you get this story in Sunday school, you don't really get the good stuff. Job, I can't recap the whole story, but Job basically is a man, a good man, a, a truly good man who uh, undergoes great suffering. And the bulk of the book is Job's argument with three or four of his friends 
and God. And Job is angry at God because God has allowed all these horrible things to happen to him despite the fact that he had not sinned. He had been a good man. But God's answer doesn't really, it doesn't really match exactly Job's complaint and Job's pleas for justice. What God does is God takes Job on a tour of creation. God takes Job on this tour. He shows him the stars and he shows him the sea and the foundations of the earth. And so the first thing God does is by doing that, by showing Job the sky and the sea and the earth, kind of contextualizes Job's complaints and kind of reduces Job in size a bit. You know, sort of, you know, sort of cosmic contextualization, you know, that happens in Genesis. But then what God does is God doesn't stop just with showing Job the stars and the earth and the sea. God takes Job out to the wilderness, out to the peripheral places of Job's world and shows Job animals that live far, 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 far from human civilization. And it really, you know, if the first bit of God's tour shrinks Job down to size, the second part of the tour, when God shows Job all the animals, displaces human civilization from the center of all things. And God, you know, praises the ostrich and the vulture and all these animals that are just pale dots on the edges of Job's consciousness. From the point of view of the vulture and of the wild ass and of the ostrich, human civilization itself appears peripheral and kind of unimportant. And uh, I think that's uh, interesting. Now, it's one thing I need to say is that you need to remember that this was written a long time ago, one of the oldest stories in the Bible. And to us, we can go down to the petting zoo, right, and see ostriches and you know donkeys and mountain goats and stuff. But in Job's day these animals were truly on the edges of the cosmos. They were truly peripheral and truly a cosmic tour that God took Job on. But it shrunk, shrunk Job and his humanity down, and then it displaced Job and human civilization from the center. God's speech does that, and I think there's an interesting parallel between that and what modern cosmology has done. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Paul Wallace, He's an astrophysicist. He teaches at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He's also an ordained minister in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and he teaches at Candler School of Theology and at Columbia Theological Seminary. We're discussing his new book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. What I really liked about that moment when you were talking about the sort of schooling that God does with Job and this moving, you know, to the very periphery of the wilderness to show Job all of the differences that and all the different things that God relates to, what you brought out in that moment that was really profound for me is that God is as relational to the flamingo, God is as relational to the warthog, God is as relational to the lichen as we think that God is to us. And yeah. and. Well that was just profound for me because that, you know, we oftentimes think, and this is particularly true when you hear dominion language, like we have dominion over the world, we tend to think of ourselves as the mediator between God and nature and that we're the tenders of that. Right. And you're completely dethroning that. Am I hearing that correctly? That's, that's good. Fair, yes. And and so, you know, what what I took away from that was was not just not just that that was destabilizing, but it was also... I found it weirdly comforting 
And I also got very clearly that you found this in a way comforting as well. Did I hear that correctly in what you were writing? Yes, that's a good word for it. I think I used the word relief, but the word comforting, I think, applies very well, too, yes. So help us to understand, where, why did I get that comfort? Where do you get what? What's comforting about noting that we're not the main parts of the story? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I was going through a dark period in my life about 10 years ago, and I have this dear friend who always was very good to me. And I came into his room one day, and I was just complaining about all kinds of things. And uh, he said, you know, Paul, if you line up all the people in the world, you're in there somewhere. And I kind of got that. What he was getting at was that my self-obsession that I was going through was was like a function of my ego. It was the sense that everything's going so wrong for me. And that kind of complaining about life, I believe, is rooted in an oversized ego. And it's a mark of uh, no humility. And when he told me that, I was able to see myself among other people as another person among people. And it felt like a big relief because it wasn't up to me to make myself happy anymore. I didn't have to work to make myself happy. Something came off my shoulders. And I think the same thing can happen sort of on a, on a, you know, on a larger scale, on human scale. If we're able to see that, no, you know, not everything in the world is about us and not all the problems that we have are necessarily our, of our making, uh, that we, and not, and the, the happiness of the world doesn't depend on us, and the happiness of the, you know, the, the goodness of creation doesn't depend on us, and the fate of the world doesn't depend on us in the way that we think it does, then maybe we could, you know, have some humility about our lives and have a sense of humor as well. Now, I'm not saying don't try to solve problems, but there's a sense of sort of human ego that gets in the way of us seeing, I think, what's really the, what's really the case. The, what, well, uh, so, so my, my sense is, is that the, the love that we perceive God showering on us when we thought that we were one of the focal points of the ellipse in that old cosmology, yeah. that God was relating to the whole of creation with that same sort of intense, very focused, very individualized love. So God... God yeah. relates to fruit flies in a very godlike way, and God relates to the bison in a very godlike way, and God relates to the lichens in a very godlike way. But so when we talk about, and this gets to the point that you're making about God being beyond conceptualization, that it's hard to, it's it's hard enough to imagine that another human being, my wife, loves me. I I, I still have trouble <laughs> wrapping my head around that, and so. An entity that that uh, or that my children love me, but an entity that is able to love so completely with all the diversity of creation, no wonder that feels alien to me. Am I am I yeah. am I just going crazy, or am I on on track with what you're trying to say here? I would I I've not thought of it that way, but I that certainly is uh is certainly consistent with with what I'm trying to get at in the book. But in the book, you're you're making the point that we should not be scared about this. We should not ra- no. rail against this. But instead, this should be something that helps us to understand more fully where we fit in all this. Am I hearing that That's right? That's right. Yeah. We need to know how we fit. If we can't figure, if we can't see how we fit and how we relate, and you know, evolution is beautiful because it actually relates us to these other creatures. It's not, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, it's it's a deep, 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 deep connection that we have to all living things. And I think that with that comes this great sense of, uh, not just responsibility, but this great sense of, uh, of relief and joy that we're related to all these things. 
and we can know our place. You know, we can we we can understand our place in this this world we've shown up in. So, in a strange sense, you've gotten us back to a medieval concept of the great chain of being. I mean, at one point, we could point out on the hierarchy exactly where we fit: a little lower than the angels, higher than the animals. Yeah, right, right. But but we had a we had a place in that cosmology, and what I'm hearing you saying is that we still have a place in the cosmology. It's differently conceived, but but yeah. we still we still matter. We still function, but everything else matters too in the way that maybe right. we lost for about six hundred years. Yes, yes, that's right. It, 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 I'm not sure we have to have a good new name for it, you know, and sort of diagram it differently. But yeah, exactly. We do have a place. And we don't belong out with the, you know, the vultures and the... We don't belong out there. We belong here. We belong in cities. But it doesn't make cities... doesn't give us a chance... doesn't give us freedom to lord it over the animals. And, and there's one last piece that I want to I wanna assemble here because we've been talking so far about terrestrial life. But you also make this wonderful statement towards the end of the book that no scientific project is so obviously religious as the search for extraterrestrial life and intelligence. And so we're, as we're trying to figure out how we fit in God's order here in the, in the world, we're also constantly looking with our eyes to the heavens saying, are you out there? Are you out there? Exactly. But so why, why do you call that the, the most uh, religious of, of scientific endeavors? I mean, we're, we're looking out there. Where do we look when we look for God? You know, we start, I made this point early in the book that our, our, our reflexes are always to look up. And I think that that's, that with us, we're still doing it. And I, and I think that, that, yeah, we're looking for other creatures. We might be looking for bacteria. We might be looking for E.T. But I think that in our hearts, as a religious person, as a, as a believer in God, I, I think that all of this is about looking for God. You know, you can call it what you will. But my perspective is that is, uh, is looking and listening, listening to the sky night after night after night for a message. That to me seems so blatantly, obviously religious. <laughs> it's hard to need explanation. Well, and at another point in the book, you mentioned that God is the question that won't go away. And yes. what I got continually from reading Stars Beneath Us is that for you it's much more about the questions than it is about the answers. At each point, I see you tilting away from settled theological answers to the big open questions. Yeah, I think I like the open spaces a bit. And, um, and so let me, let me end now with sort of one kind of practical question, and that is, could you ever see the kind of cosmology and theology that you are that you're espousing in Stars Beneath Us becoming liturgical? Could this actually become incorporated into Christian religious practice? And if so, what would that look like? You know, that's a beautiful question. My answer is yes. I think that any future religion that's going to survive and thrive over the coming centuries has got to absorb, you know, sort of in a philosophical way, you know, the way she used to talk about it that you've got to science, our view of the cosmos is not going away. And it is so thoroughly religious. I mean, it's just such a huge vision, vast vision of space and time. It, I think it could, be, it could make its way into the liturgy. Yes, I do. Now, how that would look, my first thought when you ask that question is that we would no longer sit in pews, but we'd sit in circles. However the liturgy would look, I don't know, but it seems to me there would be some, something circular about the, the layout. And it wouldn't be as quite as, um, you know, with, with the pulpit up high anymore. I think it'd be lower. The pews would be in circles. 
That's odd. That's the first thought that came to my mind, first image. Well, Paul Wallace, we've barely begun to scratch the surface of, of what you have given us in this book, and I hope that you'll you'll feel free to come back and talk to us again as, as your own thinking evolves and as you do more writing projects. I'd love to speak to you again, but for, just for today, let me say again how much I enjoyed your book, Stars Beneath Us, and thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. It was a pleasure talking to you, David. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Paul Wallace. He teaches physics and astronomy at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He holds a doctorate in experimental nuclear physics from Duke University and a Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. He also teaches at Candler and at Columbia Theological Seminary. He's ordained in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and we've been discussing his recent book, Stars Beneath Us, Finding God in the Evolving Cosmos. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.